From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Matt usually does this part. I got to remember how he does it. You, you got to wave your hands in the air and say, hello, <laughs> and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Ezra Klein. I think we should just use that. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Ezra Klein, here with Jane Kostin and special guest star for an episode we've been waiting to do a long, long time, David The Roberts. How y'all doing? <laughs> hey there. Hello. So we've been trying to get this Green New Deal episode done for a while. We kept getting um, hit by the truck of the news. Uh, we were going to do it on the day the Mueller report came out, for instance, and that didn't that didn't quite go. But we are way overdue on this. Um, and Dave, we're excited to have you here to talk about it. So let's just start. Like, what is the Green New Deal? Let, before actually we get into what what is in it, what is it? What is like that document meant to be? Is it a <laughs> policy? Is it an ideology? Is it what? Like what what is the Green New Deal? Ontologically. Uh, it is a, 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 a really good question, and I cannot, uh, unfortunately, I cannot uh, nail down its ontological status for you. It's somewhat indeterminate. Uh, is mean, it a particle it, or a it, wave? It, is what I want to know. <laughs> in the broadest, in the broadest terms, I would say it's an aspiration. It's an aspiration for the U.S. to respond to climate change on the scale that is necessary, um, with a government-led, investment-led mobilization um yeah i would say that's about that's about as as general as you could put it and that's about the one thing you could say that's going to cover all the uh all the species genus and species uh, of the green new deal uh beyond that you get into specifics and different people see it in different ways and are using it in different ways but but in the broadest terms it's just mobilize the government and the and the american people to respond to climate change uh, with with a series of investments that create a lot of jobs and 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 bring everyone on board and involve everyone. But but so if I had that aspiration the day before the Green New Deal was released and I have it the day after, then what is the Green New Deal? Right. Like, what does it say that changed this right. debate or, or, or somehow gives people a platform on which to work that they didn't have before? It's got to be more than an aspiration. People had this aspiration before. I think the best way to understand it is to sort of is to sort of work backwards. So you know these activists uh, mostly spun out of the of the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, and they started this group, Justice Dems. They recruited these young candidates, AOC and others, 
And, you know, a few of them won. It was a big deal. And all of those young candidates ran on something called the Green New Deal, which at the time was very vaguely sort of defined as this kind of mobilization. And so uh, when they got in office, the idea is we're going to have a two-year period here where Republicans are running everything and nothing's going to pass. There's no there's no legislating to be done in these next two years. So let's use these next two years to put together a legislative package on climate change that Democrats can then run on and win on and pass quickly if they win in 2020. That's the sort of strategic logic. So the Green New Deal resolution that AOC and uh, Senator Ed Markey and others uh, introduced uh, last month, or God, I don't remember how long ago it was now, it seems like forever. Uh, that document was just, here are the goals of the Green New Deal, here are its aspirations, and here are a few of the principles that were, are going to guide it. So these are sort of these broad goals and principles that are meant to guide the process of creating policy. That's that that is the intent of the resolution. So it, it's only it's it's very not restrictive. It's it's not policy as I as I've said a million times. It's just some goals and principles that the whatever policy we come up with has to sort of uh, uh, hew to these goals and principles. So one question I have is that, you know, I, I think looking at this um, and the explainers you've written on this, this seems to be not just a platform from which to launch policy, but a platform from which to rethink what the Democratic Party wants to emphasize and making it clear that climate change is an emphasis, but as is the idea of using reshifting the American economy towards 100% clean energy as a means to get to full employment through a better economy. So my question, like, is this about a forward-moving shift on climate policy, or is this a short, uh, forward-moving shift for Democrats on everything? Uh, well, both, very, very much both. I think it's meant to be a sort of uh, a, a sort of highlight policy, demonstrating what the new, what these new young left Democrats are all about. You know, it's sort of interesting. Is it the new turn in the Democratic Party, or is it an old turn? Sort of when I talked to Ed Markey. What he said was, if you look at that stuff in the resolution, all the stuff about jobs and health care and, and union wages and all this kind of stuff, all of it is taken almost directly from FDR's famous second inaugural, where he sort of made the case that freedom only comes with economic security. Real freedom only comes with economic security, with a job you can rely on that can feed your family, et cetera, et cetera. All those principles in the Green New Deal are lifted almost straight from that document. So in a sense, it's forward, but in a sense, it's also a, a hearkening back to a sort of more active government-led aspirational liberalism generally. But but yes, I think it's, and I think the the strategic logic on climate change is, I think sort of like the climate community has realized that climate change in and of itself is never going to be a, a, a motivating factor, <laughs> efficient to create the sort of public will necessary to do the big things necessary. So if you want to create that public will, you've got to yoke climate change to these other things. In other words, you've got to make sort of like solving climate change also a program of national economic renewal that can actually promise something to the working people of the United States. So I want to I want to zoom out here for a minute because we're we're talking about the Green New Deal, but we haven't defined what it actually says. So as I understand it, and, and Dave, you should expand on this, it really has what you almost might think of as two parts, although people want to say they're one part, which is one piece of it is laying out 
a series of measures and goals and um, metrics for are you producing climate policy and are you producing climate progress that is fast enough to accord with what the scientific community says you need to do to prevent global warming from getting completely out of control, right? And, and instead of instead of just kind of backing out to like, what well, can we get done? It reframes it as what must we get done? Um, that I think is fair for the first part. Do you want to talk a little bit about what those goals are? Uh, sure, sure. It's not <laughs> the the resolution's a little a little odd in that it sort of drifts close to policy sometimes and then stays very vague at other times. But in terms of the sort of climate specific goals, it just focuses on resiliency, the ability to to weather damages, focus on infrastructure, electricity, electricity grids, buildings. The manufacturing sector, like in this one section about about decarbonization, it just gets a, a little bit into the specifics of all the sort of economic sectors you're going to have to have policy for the health impacts of climate change, reforestation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which are all pretty familiar goals and, and familiar sort of uh, uh, language in, in climate policy debates. But there's a speed there, too. Right. I mean, it's not just, you know, let's do some infrastructure. Sure. It's about how fast you need to go. Sure. Everything derives from the speed. And that's something I, I like I, I want to emphasize again and again, because one of the sort of fatal kind of fuzziness, <laughs> the fuzziness of the climate conversation comes from this sort of fuzziness about goals, because the goal of reducing emissions is one thing. And it's wildly easy to achieve. <laughs> it's it's super, super easy to reduce emissions a little bit, right? So how much are we reducing them and how fast? And so the whole point of this is to peg this at this sort of IPCC goal and then work backwards from there. So yes, you get familiar sort of tranches of policy, but much more sort of aggressive and again, much more kind of government led because that's how you get the speed. And again, also the, the social parts too that, that you're going to get to next are also sort of derived from the speed. The idea is if we're going to do something this big, this fundamental to our economy, this fast, there's going to be a massive amount of disruption. There's no way around that. There's no talking around that. You're going to have whole regions, whole industries, disrupted, whole, you know, economies, you sort of micro economies disrupted. And uh, if you want people to go along with that, if you want the American people to sign up for that and go along with it, you need to promise them that you'll keep them safe, i.e. you will protect their health care. You'll make sure they have a job if they if they want one. You'll make sure that the job pays decent wages, et cetera, et cetera. So everything sort of falls out of the speed. So so on that social policy side, so the other things that it says the Green New Deal has to have is uh, it says, quote, guaranteeing a job with a family sustaining wage, adequate family and disability leave, paid vacations and retirement security to all people of the United States, strengthening, protecting the right of all workers to organize, unionize and collectively bargain, enacting and enforcing trade rules, procurement standards and border adjustments with strong labor and environmental protections, ensuring a commercial environment where every business person is free from unfair competition and domination by domestic or international monopolies, providing all members of society with high-quality health care, affordable, safe and adequate housing, economic security, and access to clean water, air, healthy and affordable food and nature. And so in this way- Yeah, they really, Sean, they really got rolling there, didn't they? Yeah, right. So Sean McElwee um, <laughs> said of this, he said, the Green New Deal is what it means to be progressive. 
And that actually seems to me like the the thing that has made it make sense to me. It's a vision of just how yeah. do you define progressivism where climate change is in the driver's seat to, to Jane's point about prioritization. And then these are all the other parts of it. The Green New Deal seems much more like a statement of an like an ideological agenda. Like what does it mean to be a member of this of this ideological tendency in America in 2019? It's a bid to define that more than it seems to me to be a policy statement or even a policy uh, agenda. It seems in some ways it's like a self it's self-defining because in the sense that it's like these all these pieces are like are linked together where it seems that this is this is a fully rounded platform, but it does not seem to be itself a fully rounded policy platform. It's like a fully rounded reconsideration of what it means to be a Democrat. Yeah. And it's and it's very I mean, much like the new deal was right it's sort of like we we we're facing this sort of crisis this set of circumstances in this country that have us you know we got a bunch of veterans returning from world war 2 we got all this going on and we need a sort of new compact among us of how we're going to treat each other and how we're going to what it's going to mean to be an american citizen and i think the green new deal has those lofty aspirations it's certainly not no one's going to create a green new deal bill that has universal health care and unionization and anti-monopoly you know, provisions in it. I don't think anyone envisions this being a bill or even I mean, it's it, as you say, it's an agenda. It's a definition of what it means to be what it means to be a liberal. And I think it's an attempt to sort of present liberals with an alternative to sort of this tepid <laughs> You know, I hate to use the word neoliberalism. Have you guys banned that word on this podcast? Uh, this is sort no, of I, lo- this I is. love I love the word neoliberalism. <laughs> the sort of what tepid, whatever you call we have now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an alternative. That actually does get to my uh, another thing I just came thinking about is that the original New Deal, which we can actually break into two parts because there was a first New Deal in 1933, and 1934. We think of the first hundred days and, you know, major banking reform, like basically in a direct response to what caused the Great Depression in the eyes of uh, President Roosevelt and a bunch of other Democrats at the time. And then you have the second New Deal, which results in Social Security and labor relations. All of this is reflective of something that I think was widely recognized by everyone who wasn't Herbert Hoover as a catastrophe, (laughs) an actual real-life giant catastrophe that took part one over a specific unit of time. It happened to virtually everyone. Um, You know, there's been a lot of uh, really interesting writing about how the New Deal in some ways helped to hinder the rise of American fascism, um, which Mm -hmm. was on on the march uh, in like 1934, 1935, 1936. Part of its intent. Right. Part of its intent, exactly. right? I mean, that's sort of one of the things it's meant to do. And I, I, I think something that's fascinating is attempting to correlate the Green New Deal with the original New Deal. I think that something I keep thinking about is, you know, how we talk about climate change as a real crisis. And I know you've written about this a lot, that it is indeed a crisis. I'm interested to see how the people who are thinking through the the Green New Deal, who are kind of trying to make policy out of it, are trying to make the same argument about the immediacy of the crisis. Because I think that that's been a big challenge. And I know you've written on this, and I've talked to conservatives about this, is just that, you know, 
even when you get conservatives on board with climate change is real and it is man-made, the idea of and it's time for immediate government action, that's the part that seems to be a separation. And so I kind of have two questions on this. One, how how do you bring that immediacy to bear? And two, if this is something that you, you we, this is something that's not going to result in a Green New Deal bill, this is supposed to be something that's about kind of restructuring what it means to be a progressive. How does that work in brass tacks politics when you are being opposed by, say, Lindsey Graham? <laughs> well, uh, these are those are very good questions. I mean, you're right that the severity of World War II was sort of self uh, <laughs> self evident, right? It did not need much argument made on its behalf. But you know, I've been watching climate people wrestle with exactly this problem for 20 years now and it's and it's it's the 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 severity of the crisis in a sense has always been available to those who go looking <laughs> at the information right and it's all about communicating it i don't know why if it's just sort of like plugging away for so long or what, or if it's young people coming up into more positions of power or what exactly shifting but something about this last ipcc report the one that came out uh, last year, uh, <clears throat> something about that report broke through in a way that all the previous IPCC reports hadn't really in regard to the urgency. Because it's it sort of what the IPCC report did that, that sort of kicked all this off is it was looking at the difference between um, holding global temperature rise to two degrees Celsius, which has sort of been the traditional target of climate politics, and holding it to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is what sort of low-lying countries and vulnerable countries are saying is necessary to protect them. This is a debate in the in the UN, and sort of the official language in the Paris Agreement is hold it to two, make all possible efforts to hold it to 1.5. So the question was, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about this 0.5 degree difference? And that's what the IPCC report is about. And it turns out the difference between 1.5 and 2 is hundred, you know, millions of lives, uh, entire ecosystems, the world's coral. It turns out it's a it's it really matters a lot. And so how do we hold it to 1.5? That's where these sort of 10-year, 12-year goals that you hear thrown around by the Green New Deal people, that's where those are derived from. So, so just to make this clear, because there's a lot of confusion about this wandering around the internet, the IPCC said, if you want to hold temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is sort of what justice demands, the only way to do that is to completely decarbonize the world globally by mid-century, by 2050. And to get on a trajectory to do that, you need to be about halfway there by 2030. So the world needs to slash its greenhouse gas emissions by half by 2030. That's the sort of official IPCC goal. So that's referenced in the Green New Deal. But also, there's an additional consideration which has caused debate in the last uh, a couple of weeks. If the world needs to decarbonize by 2050, how should the remaining emissions that we're allowed be divided up? It makes sense that developing countries who haven't had the long runway we've had and haven't had the use of unlimited fossil fuels like we got and are behind and are trying to bring people out of poverty deserve more of those emissions. So in other words, if everybody has to decarbonize by 2050, developing countries need to go faster to leave more room, more slack for developing countries. And that's 
where this goal of 2030 decarbonization comes from. That's what the Green New Deal activists are pushing. They're saying on an equity basis, the U.S. needs to move faster than other countries. It needs to get all the way to total decarbonization by 2030. That is a level of urgency that I can't quite sign on to because it's fantastical. But but so the urgency is sort of, I guess what I'm saying is, a lot more uh, evident now and I think a lot more publicly understood. And it, and, in, and part of that is because of the Green New Deal sort of shoving it into the, the spotlight. So let's get really concrete here, though. If we wanted to decarbonize America or 80 percent decarbonize America by 2030, what does that look like for me, for you, for somebody living in Ohio, for somebody living in California, for somebody living in Florida? I mean, that's that's like a kind of set of words that I don't think means a lot to people. But sometimes you hear <laughs> no. people say that we can do it, like getting ready for climate change, averting climate change. If we just had the will, it's fine. And then sometimes you get this kind of it's a World War II style, complete overhaul of the American economy and an intense mobilization such that you need a federal jobs guarantee to make sure we don't have bread lines in the streets. So what are we looking at? Like paint the picture for me of what America would have to do to meet any of those goals? The honest answer from anyone you ask that question to is, I don't know. <laughs> no one knows exactly what that's going to look like. But it's 2020. I mean, by 2030, we need we don't have that much time to figure it out. Sure. <laughs> what I want to say, what I, I mean, my I mean, this is just my opinion and opinions on this uh, vary considerably. But I think the IPCC goal of of total decarbonization by 2050 and halfway there by 2030 is right out at the edge maybe even a little past the edge of what is even conceivable to me in the context of American society and politics. Sort of like, how fast could we possibly push? That's about as fast as I can envision. Total decarbonization by 2030 <laughs> is is uh, different, not just in degree, but in kind. So, So for instance, there are all kinds of energy applications for which we do not yet have uh, uh, zero carbon alternatives and are unlikely to have them within 10 years. So if you want to say uh, totally decarbonize the airline industry by 2030, uh, a lot of that is going to involve just not letting people fly. Right. And there's and there are industrial processes that we don't yet know how to decarbonize. And if you get to 2030 and they're still going, you just shut them down. So I'm not even convinced that do, doing it by 2030 would involve something like martial law. It would involve something like the government literally taking control of multiple industries, deliberately shutting them down, deliberately sort of abandoning billions of dollars in assets, fossil fuel assets that have not depreciated yet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It means something like I don't want to say police state, but something something along those lines of urgency, like a total total government takeover and management of the economy. And even even if we could manage that, it would be difficult to do by 2030. I just think insisting on it by 2030 is kind of crazy. You kind of define yourself, you, you sort of you sort of write yourself out of the conversation if you do that. But but opinions differ. So the sort of sunrise movement, the youth movement behind the Green New Deal has taken it upon itself to sort of define this as the edge. They're insisting on 2030, and that's why they've criticized some of the plans so far. I think if we, if the U.S. could totally decarbonize by 2050, that would be the greatest collective accomplishment 
in all of human history. <laughs> I mean, it's a really, really, really big thing. It's really fast to do it by 2050. Doing it by 2030 is like Orwellian. I just don't think it's on the conceivable menu of possibilities absent like a meteor striking or I don't even know what would, I don't know what would enable that. But to me, like 2050 is absolutely like a stretch goal that we can wrap our minds around and sort of plan around in some sort of coherent way. Yeah. So um, I want to move a little bit within the Green New Deal, but away from the specifics of climate to talking about you made the point that the Green New Deal involving so many large scale investments would make it a program that you and to quote you can involve everyone and help everyone theoretically gain support from everyone, even those in red states who do not care about climate change. Can you talk a little bit more about the Green New Deal as jobs program, because I think that it's interesting how you're starting to see a couple of 2020 candidates. And I've heard this from a couple of candidates who have been somewhat appealing to some on the right, that the idea of kind of, you know, the like returning to New Deal, the original New Deal programs that basically encouraged, you know, the federal government to get involved in encouraging hiring and a jobs guarantee is of real interest, specifically for people who are very concerned with having very low unemployment, with the fact that we have a very low unemployment rate, but that doesn't necessarily bear out in whether or not people are working in the way that they want to be. Right. Are working good jobs. Right. Uh, this, this is sort of one... Um, area of the Green New Deal that is both kind of packed with promise, but also a little bit of a Rorschach blot. So the notion that you want to design a national climate policy such that it creates a bunch of jobs is old hat, right? That's been in every sort of democratic climate plan or agenda or white paper in history and is in every climate plan that's being released by candidates today. The reason I think the Green New Deal resolution freaked people out is that it went beyond that sort of boilerplate language about let's focus on creating lots of good, high paying jobs and said, let's guarantee that everybody gets a good, high paying job. And that and that kind of flipped everybody's lid. It got a bunch of uh, uh, economists, including even some progressive economists, sort of arguing about about whether the feds could actually manage something like that or whether something like that is even possible. I think it's probably at this stage too early to get hung up on the word guarantee. I think instead we just need to think about what kind of government policy creates a bunch of jobs. And even on that, there's several categories. So in a sense, if you create a bunch of uh, uh, regulatory mandates forcing utilities to clean up or cars to clean up or industry to clean up, you're going to create a bunch of new uh, products, new cleaner products and new cleaner industries, you're going to create jobs uh, by forcing economic change at all, in a sense. But I think what the Green New Deal people want, at least I think the activists at the heart of this Green New Deal thing have this sort of more old fashioned dim notion of reviving U.S. manufacturing. So the idea is stand up our manufacturing base. So we are the ones manufacturing the solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles. And that and and that's how you restore these good jobs that appeal to people in middle America. And then of course there's beyond that, there's just brute force job creation. <laughs> Something like, you know, a government program that just hires thousands of people to go plant trees. You know, there's also that as an option uh, on the far end. So exactly what people are supporting on the job creation front is a little fuzzy. But I think everybody is united around the notion that 
clean energy is a way, maybe the only way we really see of stimulating enough manufacturing activity and enough old school sort of physical <laughs> economic activity to create good jobs. I think that's conventional wisdom almost at this point. All right, let's take a break. And then I want to come back and talk a bit about the political theory behind this project. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. All right. So let's start here, Dave. What What is the political theory that the Green New Deal proponents have for, for the Green New Deal? Like, how do they explain what they're doing here and why it will work? Sure. The best way is to sort of work backwards. <laughs> the status quo in American politics right now is gridlock. And it looks like all the forces um, driving that are robust and only expected to continue. And 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 as you know very well, as are the structure of U.S. politics, puts us in this 50-50 nation. And so even if Dems take the presidency and the House and the Senate in 2020, which is very, very far from a sure thing, you know, McConnell's just going to filibuster every bill like he did with Obama, like he said he was going to do and then did. <laughs> so, so if things stay the way they are in American politics, and I mean in broad terms, the, the sort of balance of power, we're, we get nothing. Nothing's going to happen. And, and, and this, I want to like drive this home. The choice here is not asking for some big, massive thing like the Green New Deal and getting nothing or asking for small incremental steps and getting small incremental steps. There's no 
reason to think that McConnell's going to sign off on small incremental steps either. <laughs> the default here is nothing. And if you understand the urgency of climate change and the, 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 the real suffering it's going to impose and the speed at which it's acting and the sort of crucial window of time we're in right now, that is disastrous. That's just disastrous for the U.S. to abdicate action and leadership at this juncture is just disastrous. <laughs> so the question is, what can break us out of this? So it's not going to be messaging, right? The climate people have tried every version of messaging under the sun. Dems are obsessed with messaging and framing, but clearly that's not going to do it. It's just power that's going to do it. This some, some form of power has got to break up this terrible balance. And so what power do we have access to on the left, on the green left, it's people power, right? We don't have reliable billionaires, really. We don't have uh, a giant centuries-old fossil fuel <laughs> industry and all its attendant uh, dependent industries. We don't have any of that. All we have is people. So how can we get a people movement, a grassroots surge going that is sufficiently strong that it can overwhelm this gridlock kill the filibuster, maybe even carry along some Republican working people, or at least put Republicans on the defensive, scare them about this, put them on the defensive, and um, break the, the, the gridlock that way from an outside in. So if you, if you look at the sort of 2008 to 2010 Democratic climate bill strategy, it was kind of the ultimate the ultimate version of, of inside out. Start with corporate actors, start with businesses, start with the centrists, reach out to the reasonable people on the other side, start in the center, work out from there. And it was just a spectacular failure. I think everyone agrees because there's no center left. The Republican Party has no center left. There's no one to talk to anymore. So what's left <laughs> is outside in. I don't think if you ask the activists involved, they're going to tell you, yeah, we're super confident that this is going to work. We're confident we're going to get a grassroots movement started. It's going to scare the crap out of the Democratic establishment. They're going to kill the filibuster, and then they're going to go crazy passing ambitious bills. It's obviously a long shot, but, but the alternative to the long shot is stasis and gridlock and disaster. So You've mentioned killing the filibuster a bunch of times, but as far as I can tell, the Green New Deal doesn't say anything about doing that. And a bunch of the people who say they support the Green New Deal don't support killing the filibuster. So that seems like, I mean, something even less than table stakes here to me. <laughs> like before you can even think about anything, you got to think about the filibuster here. But of the many things in the Green New Deal, from guaranteeing every American a job to passing Medicare for all, the filibuster isn't in here. And I, I guess I don't know what Ed Markey thinks in the filibuster. He may be uh, a proponent of of reforming it. But a bunch of the people have come out and said they're for the Green New Deal, Cory Booker and others, they don't support getting rid of the filibuster. So people, it doesn't seem to me that for all of the ideological policing happening around this proposal, that that is actually part of it for reasons I genuinely don't understand. Uh, I, I I share your your mystification and your obsession with the subject. I don't know what Cory Booker thinking. I mean, I literally I cannot reconstruct in my head a coherent line of reasoning that could lead Cory Booker <laughs> to the conclusion that he's even in my most charitable. I don't know what he could possibly be thinking. Or 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 Klobuchar, who said the other day, like I can get Republican cooperation. Oh. 
<laughs> How? And and if so, why haven't you in the last 10 years? I just don't know what anybody's thinking. I asked Ed Markey directly, actually, about that. And he and he basically dodged. He said, we don't have to decide that now. Let's let's make that decision once we win. So so I, I, I think one thing is I'm not sure that any politician or at least a lot of politicians are necessarily saying what they honestly think about the filibuster. I think there's a lot of sort of strategic thinking going on here. Should we reveal that we're after this? Should we give McConnell any bad ideas? I don't know exactly what the thinking is inside the Democratic establishment, and I don't know why the activists are not more exercised about this other than the sort of general fact that you, it's very hard to get people worked up about procedural issues. But But like you, I think if you leave the filibuster in place, None of this matters. It's all talk. It's all empty talk. That's that's the one to me that you're right. That's table stakes for anything else to happen, big or small. So that actually leads me to something. Uh, so the Weeds Facebook group, which is always a den of thoughtful commentary. Um, and, and I mean that that sounded more sarcastic than I meant it to. <laughs> oh, man, so much shade on our great Facebook. I, I don't mean to. I, I, I'm broken inside. But anyway, um, so a wretched when, hive of, of intelligent commentary. It's like most sizely, <laughs> but good. Um, so <laughs> Jeff Weitzel on our Facebook page asked, uh, I'd like a good analysis of the pragmatism and political economy of marrying economic justice with climate change mitigation. And he notes how the two have a natural synergy and that thinking of the Green New Deal as kind of this overall revolution that's going to transform our political economy from top to bottom. And I think that that matches because you were talking about how, okay, we're not obviously going to be, you know, Democrats are not going to be able to find common cause in this particular issue with Republicans in this time or ever. Um, But, you know, the Democratic base, as we keep having this conversation over and over again, is not as progressive as a lot of people think it is. So I'm interested of how tying together, you know, I'm, I'm you know, if a little concerned, perhaps, about that idea that economic justice and full employment, tying that together with climate change mitigation efforts, you know, how do you view that all working together? I mean, I think that as we were yeah. talking about that is the kind of a a reconceiving of what it means to be a progressive. But who who does that – I feel like that seems to leave out a lot of people who think of themselves as part of the Democratic constituency. Yeah, it's a very good question and I, I don't have firm – I don't have firm or great answers to it. But I think it, it – again, it depends on whether you're looking at this as an inside out or an outside in effort. If you're starting inside out, starting at the center, then yes, you do what the democratic policy approach to this has been now for 20 years, which is strip away everything not directly <laughs> climate related – even strip away any use of revenue, any sort of hint of policy that might offend Republicans, right? We'll just do a carbon tax and then we'll give the revenue directly back. We won't grow the government. We won't do any regulations. This sort of endless effort to craft a climate policy that is so denuded of anything else, that's so laser focused on carbon that no one will have any reason to complain about it and will get support that way from Republicans that way. That's been the approach for a long time. And I've seen a lot of climate people begging, pleading, arguing, you know, bargaining down their policy asks again and again and again. And it's just been an absolute and total failure. The, the hoped for uh, uh, a support from fiscal conservatives has not 
come forth in any number at all. It failed in Washington state. It's it's not going anywhere in Congress. That approach, all that's done is make Democrats water down their solutions and water down their rhetoric for nothing, for nothing. They don't get any credit for it. They don't get any support for it. So let's not pretend that that's the successful way to do it. That's what's been tried and failed. So this alternate strategy is just outside in. So the kind of things that get ordinary people excited are different than the kind of things that get Washington insiders excited. So if you yoke these kinds of policies together, it it scares away DC insiders. It scares away centrists because it seems like additive makes it more difficult. But if you look at polls of the public, the more of these things you yoke together, the more they like it. <laughs> like when the when the Green New Deal resolution was first released, they did a bunch of polling, uh, a bunch of people, including uh, Data for Progress, did a bunch of polling, testing this language and testing it against counter messages and even saying, even if it costs a lot of money, like really, really uh, stress testing all these parts of the Green New Deal and they poll through the roof. They were getting like 70% across demographics. People like jobs. They, they like national purpose. They like clean energy. Everybody loves clean energy. Everybody likes good jobs. Everybody would like, you know, uh, to, to have health care that wasn't a giant hassle and wasn't threatened uh, it, with vanishing if you lose a job. So, so those things add support, public support, but they seem to subtract support from sort of insider politicians. And that's the dilemma. And I think the choice of the Green New Deal people is just the former strategy hasn't worked and isn't going to work. So all that's left is the latter strategy, sort of make this into a big vision, a big, exciting vision that's so tangible and so clear that it can activate and interest people who aren't that into politics and who don't follow politics very much activate a public groundswell and that uh, more than anything will shift those those insiders. That's the that's the play. That's the idea. So there, there are a couple of things here that I think are tricky. One, I really think a lot of this approach to polling is just wrong. The one thing that I believe in polling is it just depending on how you ask the question, you will get whatever answer you want. And I'm not saying anybody's doing bad polling here. I think actually a lot of the polling data for politics is done is good. And there's like good work here and you can get some information. But the reason DC insiders blanch at this kind of thing is that they've seen how it goes before. You start with something that seems very popular. We're going to pass health care insurance and more people are going to have health care. And it's like, that pulls great. Universal health care has always pulled great. You know, more people getting health care has always pulled great. It always pulls great. And then you get into the debate and, well, actually, but like my hospital or wait, you didn't tell me there are going to be higher taxes to do this health care. I didn't, I didn't think anybody would have to pay anything for this health care. Or wait, there's an individual mandate now, so I have to get health care? Or you're going to take away my private insurance? Or wait, I bought a shit policy four years ago that doesn't cover anything, but it's cheap. I can't have that anymore? Right. Like, you're going to take that away from me, even if you're giving me sub- – I don't trust your subsidies. Like, I don't like you. Um, they're death right. panels. Sarah Palin told me. She told me they're de- – <laughs> on Facebook, she told me they're death panels. And they wouldn't let her just put that on Facebook if it wasn't true, would they? Right. You can't. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg would never let you put something untrue on Facebook. (laughs) And the 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 difficulty with this kind of conflict expansion is that every single one of these things has a counter argument that begins scaring people. And moreover, like the experience a lot of people have of trying to pass these really, really big bills is that once you really get into the guts of it, people 
get nervous about the government doing big things. They don't like the government much. I mean, goddamn, look yeah. at it, right? Like, look at Washington. Um, it's not crazy that people don't totally trust it to, to do huge things. And so the, the fear I think a lot of people have is that when you begin attaching all these things, how do you do a jobs guarantee? Who gets that guarantee? What happens when people begin mm-hmm. talking about the folks who don't deserve, who like in the public mind don't deserve to get their job guaranteed? You know, what about the people who don't show up to the job, right? Like you get all these things that are going to be part of the counterattack. And now if you've tied the whole thing to everything, right? Like passing one big thing is really, really hard. Passing lots of big things right. is, is even harder. So on the other hand, it's like if there was evidence that you would mobilize this mass movement, great. But there also isn't really evidence of that. I mean, it does. We don't have a lot of examples. Just mobilization of that level is it's like the continuous white whale of politics. And always, (laughs) always everywhere, people say that it's because the underlying idea, it wasn't ambitious enough or it wasn't or got too compromised or like the politician forgot what they were doing. But I actually just think it's hard. Um, I think that the reason we don't have more and better examples of this kind of mass mobilization around leftist policies upending American politics is because it's hard. Like, why don't we have single payer in Vermont right now? Because mass mobilization is really hard. And so I'm not against the Green New Deal as sort of like to me, it reads right now as you're creating like there used to be a New Deal Democrat. And now you're creating the idea of the Green New Deal Democrat. But I just I'm very skeptical of this mass mobilization theory. I don't see like why haven't we seen it in the states in this way? Like, you know, occasionally you'll get something like there's a a, um, like a ballot initiative for minimum wage or something. And that'll do really well and it'll do better than the Democrats do. And it it provides some sucker for this theory. When you get to the really big ambitious stuff. You just don't see it. California has tried single payer in a lot of different directions and just other kinds of health expansions in different directions. And it keeps not going through despite it not being very heavily compromised down. So there's something in here about the kind of leftist critique of how much power tends to control political outcomes, which I think is correct and it's depressing. And then this idea that it'll be swept away and you don't need to do any kind of accommodation with that power. And I just I'm not necessarily saying I have like a different answer. But I don't know that this one seems as convincing to me as as people want to make it out to be. I'll start this way. If you want to look at the examples of what seems to work, look at the states. You elect a bunch of Democrats, so they're in charge. And then the public is like, yeah, do something about climate and clean energy. And the and the lawmakers go off and work out the details and the public doesn't care much. And the, and the, and the lawmakers pass it and the public is like, yeah, you did something about climate change and everyone's happy. Like that's the model that works, right? Put Democrats in charge. The public doesn't actually want or need to be super involved in the details of the policy. But that it uh, is is foolproof at the state level, but but apparently impossible at the federal level because of the filibuster and everything else. So so you're left with crappy, implausible options. And I totally agree with you. I, I, there's one thing I want to emphasize. There's one sort of step I think you left out there that's crucial here. So so you start with a big, broad, positive ideas like this, and they poll well. And you're absolutely right. Like you can get positive poll numbers for positive things like clean energy. Yeah, it's good. I like it. Like jobs. Yeah. Like more, more money, more good things. Yes. What about bad things? Oh, no, I don't like those. Right. Like you can you can get whatever poll numbers you want. But what you said is voters start hearing this and they start hearing that and they start hearing this, but then they start, you know, so, like it doesn't just occur to them. These fears about the policies don't just sort of spontaneously occur to people. They're driven into their heads. And this is I, I wrote a post about this the other day is right now the right has a giant 
machine, a giant multifaceted media think tank, social media machine that is devoted to shaping public opinion in a conservative way, which usually just means scaring the shit out of people. But the left has no such machine. The left is sort of dependent on quote unquote objective mainstream reporters to convey its perspective you know, and how many of these sort of cable news panels have we seen where sort of the, the, the debate is between objective mainstream journalists and right wing ideologues? That's sort of like the, the ideological span you get in, in, in D.C. politics. So, yes, it's true. Any big good idea that Dems come up with, anything Dems try to do, period, full stop, the right has the ability to utterly poison it in in the heads of roughly 40%, give or take, of the electorate almost immediately at will. And the left does not have the commensurate ability to fire up any sort of intensity of support, any of the same sort of like, you know, mobilized, active, uh, freaked out support that might counter that intensity of opposition. So as long as that structural media asymmetry is there, there's no good solution. There's no there's no message that will sell itself. Right. There's no there's no policy that can't be lied about or demagogued. There's no way to make these things immune to that unless you have some sort of like machine to counter the other machine. You're permanently structurally at a disadvantage here and there are no good answers. So I don't have a good answer for you, but but, you know, no one else does either. Jane, I, I feel like you're more learned on the sort of left and right deep histories than, than Dave Rice. So like, what do you think about these theories of, of mass mobilization in, in contemporary politics? Like, what would you look to as, as an example for that working or failing? Historically, it's it's a complicated issue because the you know, when we even using a term like mass mobilization, I would ask who is the mass? Because you know, when we're talking about the polling numbers, we're reflect polling numbers are reflective of who's getting polled in these specific instances, and so you know I was I was reflecting on your example of Washington State, and I interviewed uh, Jay Inslee, which you can find in a past episode of the Ezra Klein Show, and we talked about some of the failures that have happened in Washington State with regard to the ca- the car tab fee fiasco and a couple of other aspects. Because I think that something that I notice um, one. With regard to kind of conservative media infrastructure, it's fascinating because I, you know, I've been talking a lot about how a lot of conservative media is not so much pro-conservative as it's focused on a fulcrum of anti-whatever liberals are doing. And so when you ask, okay, like what is your response? The idea is that they don't need to have a response because conservatism, I think, in some ways at this point, movement conservatism is pretty okay with stasis and is pretty okay, you know, because the idea of conservatism, you know, there's the famous William F. Buckley quote about you know, standing athwart his history yelling stop you know right well, now reverse, we've got reverse now right you know you've got to <laughs> got well i think that there's you you try to stop what you can and then on the things you can't reverse you say you're a libertarian now um <laughs> that's and, a great line and so but you know my my question though is i think that that the issue that you brought up earlier about uh, Ezra did about how you know people are supportive of these policies until they rem- then until they're like ah you know what about my taxes and you saw that in with Washington State as well how even green policies on the the most local of bases with voters who think of themselves as being really focused mm-hmm. on climate issues you know 
people are not, you know, it's kind of climate issues or my ability to get my car where I need it to be to do the things I need to do. I, I feel like I'm a terrible person because I'm like, whatever happened to practicality? And I, but I, I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on that issue because I think that that's something that I think conserv- conservatives have a fascinating ability to both attempt to mimic what they think the public is already saying and then make the public say it. You know, you've done some really <laughs> great writing on how, you know, Fox News has influenced the perception of the Green New Deal, a pers- you know, the Green New Deal that has not resulted in anything yet. You know, it's yes. at this point a concept. And then you hear from certain commentators uh, on the right that like, you know, people are already opposed to this thing when they are the only people talking about the thing they're opposing. So, but I, I am curious about how you think about this, you know, when you see something like what happened in Washington state, or you see on the local level, certain climate uh, mitigation efforts being getting bogged down. And I, th- I think that the quite, you know, someone raised in the Facebook thread, the issue of nuclear energy. And I think that's something where, I, I'm, I would be really fascinated to hear your take on how nuclear would play into this, and how the the, the el- and on a larger sense, how the elements of practicality play into these into these concepts on the local level. Yeah, uh, that's that's a, a lot, and I don't uh, have great answers. I mean, I think the the the, the experience of Washington is really in, is really interesting. So Inslee was governor, Democratic governor, and, and did not have full control of both houses for a long time. Republicans had control of the Senate for a long time. And so what happened? Nothing. Inslee tried a bunch of stuff. They blocked it all. Nothing. Then we tried two cycles in a row, direct to voter ballot initiatives, right? One was very sort of fiscally conservative, a fully refunded carbon tax with nothing else involved that would give all the revenue back very sort of very sort of uh, uh, inoffensive to any centrist or, or conservative but would have redu- would have reduced uh, greenhouse gases a ton uh, Washington voters rejected that then we went back the next time around with a ballot initiative that was sort of the opposite approach it would it would be very revenue positive it would raise a bunch of money and then spend the money on clean energy projects and clean water projects. And it even had a list, a map. Here are all the communities, the local communities in Washington that are going to receive this investment, that are going to that are going to see tangible, immediate improvements from this program. It's sort of a, a much more of a Green New Deal model, sort of like we're going to tax, we're going to spend, <laughs> we're going to do this together. And they rejected that almost with the same numbers, almost as though the total 180 flip in policy approach didn't make any difference at all. And really just people did not want to pull the trigger on imposing a climate policy on themselves. And yet the very next cycle, they voted a bunch of Democrats into office. Inslee now has both houses. And so Washington just passed a whole slate of clean energy bills that are absolutely as or more ambitious than either of those um, uh, ballot initiatives that are absolutely like whatever fear you may have had about any of that past stuff should have been triggered by this stuff. But but a people elected Democrats and B people are are thrilled and, you know, hailing the Democrats for doing this, all of which is to make my point that. Like, I think I'm kind of a bad person, too, for thinking this, Jane. But I I really think that most people just are like, I believe climate's a problem. 
I don't want to friggin' deal with it. I don't want to think about it. Don't ask me about the politics. Just do something about it. Like, just do something about it. I think that's what people, I think that's about the depth of most people's opinion on this. So absolutely, like if you ask people, like, get out of your house, write your senator about this, like go out and march, like get excited and advocate for it. Most people won't. So the question is, does the left have the ability in the face of Fox et al., in the face of sort of centrist Democrat indifference, in the face of total nihilist right-wing opposition to reach a core of people and get them intensely supportive of this, build a core of intense support that can rival the intense right-wing base. Because to Ezra's question, like if you look, where's the mass movement in the last, that worked in the last several decades? Well, it's the Tea Party, right? I mean, and how it worked is they built the giant media machine and scared the shit out of the nation's old people. And then they got really excited. Look how low the national debt is now. Yes, I was about to say, like, really depends <laughs> on what you mean by the word oh, works. I guess success is, yeah. Let's take uh, a, uh, let's take a, break and then I want to come back because I actually do think there's a viable political theory here and I want to make the argument for it. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So there is this argument about popular mobilization, and that's how you're going to pass the Green New Deal. And I think I've put myself on record. I'm skeptical of it. But that isn't to say that I don't think there is an argument here. And I think it relates, Dave, to what you were just saying. Here's how I see this potentially playing out if there is the possibility of of a good outcome here. It's that what you're really seeing is not an an effort to change the views of the mass public, most of whom are not paying any attention to this and many of whom don't like it, even if they are. Um, it's to change the views of the Democratic Party itself. To, to Jane's point, it is to change what the Democratic Party does and doesn't prioritize. It's to change the incentives for a Beto O'Rourke, a Cory Booker, a Joe Biden, for that matter. Right. People want to be on the Green New Deal train um, because they don't want to get primaried. They want to get support. They want to co-sponsor something with um, Ocasio-Cortez, whatever it might be. And so what you're first doing is changing the nature of the Democratic Party so that if the Democratic Party has an opportunity to govern, which it may not, but if it does, then instead of spending that opportunity on health care first or – Right. An EITC expansion or whatever it might be, they're going to spend it on climate. And I think that's confusing in this document because it's got this whole back section of universal job guarantees and Medicare for all and you and redoing labor organizing laws. But but I think that what the green like abstracted out what the Green New Deal effort really is, is trying to push Democrats towards a more ambitious idea of climate policy and also trying to get them to prioritize it such that like everybody always says the Green New Deal is not going to be one piece of legislation. So the piece that's going to go first at a moment when maybe you do for whatever reason have a rare instant when you can govern is going to be this. But that to me is why I, I do harp on things like the filibuster. So there are a lot of arguments right now about what the Democratic Party should be. Should it be 
New Deal Democrats or Green New Deal Democrats? Should it be democratic socialists or neoliberals or progressives or liberals? Or should it be about identity politics or just about economics? Right? There are all these debates about what the Democratic Party should be. And I'm writing a piece about this. But before you can really have any outcome of those debates, the Democratic Party needs to be about democracy. It needs to be about allowing a majority to govern successfully. Because if a majority can't govern, and a majority is the only kind of power Democrats are likely to have in an overwhelming way, um, then there's just nothing for it. You're not going to get the little things done. You're not going to get the big ones done. And so to me, the frustration that I have with the Green New Deal project is that it's so focused on mass mobilization um, that it's not focused enough on what would even happen if you mobilize the masses. Like, how would you change right. political structures such that a mass mobilization would actually be an effective mobilization even if you got it there? Where I do think it has been extraordinarily effective is it has moved the Democratic Party elites. I mean, to, to your point about elites, you know, not being on board for this, and like increasingly they are. Um, increasingly they, you know, members of the Senate who are Democrats, of the House who are Democrats, they at least want to pledge fealty to this, even if they they would not probably endorse every specific outcome. Or there are moderate alternatives to this. Are, are like wildly ambitious relative to <laughs> even the far left like five years ago. So that feels to me like actually part of the, the the project. If you can get the Democratic Party to a place where it would, if it had the opportunity to govern, it would do climate first and it would do something big on climate. That is a huge, unbelievable achievement that was not true three years ago, right? That's not what would have happened three years ago if the Democratic Party had had the opportunity to govern. And so then I think the question becomes, one, how do you get that opportunity to govern? And two, are the structures, or are you going to do something? something about the structures such that they allow you to govern when you get in there. But but to, to all this, Beto O'Rourke and Jay Inslee have come out with policy ideas that they say are Green New Deal inflected, that they say are, are equal to the scale of the challenge. And, you know, I want to get your take on this, Dave. It is certainly my impression that these are much more ambitious climate proposals than we saw in 2016 or 2012 or even to the, or 2008. Totally, totally. I think that's all right. I think that's all right about moving, uh, moving the policy conversation among Democrats. I think it's absolutely right that this, for the first time, has created a kind of a real momentum within the party that Democrats finally feel like they can't ignore, <laughs> right? And that's and that's and you're right. It's a remarkable achievement, and it's remarkable that they did it. I mean. In the comparative blink of an eye, I mean, this was like amazing. They basically went and sat in Pelosi's office and overnight, like overnight, the U.S. political system is obsessed with climate change. Overnight, like Democrats are like arguing about climate change in the, in the headlines every day, which is like, you know, I've been waiting and waiting for this to happen. So so it was a swift kick in the ass that actually worked to wake people up and get people talking totally. I don't know if it's fair to to be frustrated with the Green New Deal people at this as as it is to just be frustrated with the whole left about this. I mean, everything you say about the Green New Deal is true about literally any policy priority Absolutely. you may have. Well, this is <laughs> why a, I'm always frustrated with everybody about this subject. <laughs> yes, I know. I, sh I share that. Uh, I'm an equal, that. I'm so an like, equal opportunity haranguer about the filibuster. <laughs> yes, all, all should be harangued about it and they all should have it as a part of their they should all have it as a part of their uh, a platform, no matter what uh, po uh, sorts of policy area they're going after. I uh, totally agree with that. Um, the question is, if you're if you're looking for a practical road 
to policy at the federal level. Well, let me let me talk about Beto and and uh, and Jay Inslee real quick. So they're actually a quite an interesting contrast, especially if you're sort of down in the weeds. Pardon the pun. Wait, is that a pun? Pardon the reference uh, uh, of climate policy. So Beto is sort of not a climate guy. I think it's fair to say he doesn't have much of a history on it. He doesn't have much of a record on it. It's not clearly not a thing that like animates him. And so his his uh, policy that he came out with was was uh, someone described it as the movement had a baby with a consultant, which I think is exactly right. Sort of there's a lot of sort of like old school Democratic consultant speak about sort of mobilizing private investment and, you know, uh, unleashing markets and all these sort of all these sort of like trigger words that 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 Democratic consultants and, and centrist Democratic uh, people love to hear. But at the same time, it was the Green New Deal that was that that's at the root of it. It was an investment led uh, uh, a policy that the, the headline piece of it was we're going to mobilize five trillion dollars in investment. And that is the legacy of the Green New Deal. So it's sort of like, how can I take this Green New Deal and give it kind of a conventional Democrat sheen <laughs> so that I can please the kind of Green New Deal people and then also please the sort of conventional groups that I have to con- please in the Democratic Party. So, I mean, a- as qua policy, it's not that interesting. And I think it'll be ephemeral and like no one will remember it in a couple of months. But it's interesting in so far as it reveals the influence of the Green New Deal, right? Inslee's is a different matter. Inslee has been down in the muck on this stuff for years and years, wrote a book about it back in, was it 2007, I think, uh, uh, you know, has been beating this drum his whole career and knows and cares about the policy. So he actually doesn't say this is a Green New Deal policy. He says he calls it his climate mission. And this is something that he and his team have been working on for a a, a long time, sort of like, if anything, the Green New Deal people are catching up with him rather than vice versa, I think is probably how he would like to is how he would like to put it. So his is I mean, his for one thing is going to come out in like five separate five separate policy releases. This first batch is just uh, a, a few, uh, you know, a few select sectors. He's got, you know, he's got a, a whole piece on investment coming, a piece on climate justice coming, a piece on the hard to reach sectors like the industry and what to do about existing buildings. All that's still to come. The piece he released is just about new buildings and new cars and um, and electricity. But what I think is heartening about Inslee and the excitement of the Green New Deal and the sort of mobilization of the Green New Deal and the sort of uh, really great branding, like I said, like the climate people have been waiting and waiting and waiting for years for some brand or slogan or something that can capture the intense complexity of all this in something inspiring. And the Green New Deal just does it in three words, like people get it in three words. So it's amazing. But to marry that with the the policy, the attention to policy detail and the policy acumen that Inslee is bringing, I think it's fair to say that most people don't expect Inslee to, to come from behind in this contest and end up the next president. But I really hope that he can raise the level of policy acumen so that we're getting thoughtful, experienced policy hands working on this giant thing. And that's what Inslee's policy looks like to me. And so that to me is like the most heartening thing that's come out of all this so far. I was thinking a little bit about you were talking, you know, kind of 
noting the difference between uh, between Democrats in you know 2008, 2012, even 2016 with regard to these policies. And I think I feel like the Green New Deal is and how Democrats are talking about the Green New Deal, not Pelosi and others necessarily kind of Democratic elites, but kind of the party writ large. It, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how whatever happened to centrism. And I, my argument has been that no one ever <laughs> liked centrism and centrism is just the yes. kind of no, yeah, everybody that hates centrism. Correct. No one is a centrist. And I think that this is reflective of Democrats, as p- particularly, you know, sectors of the Democratic base, recognizing that, like, centrism is not going to get them anywhere. Amen. That moving towards a middle of the road view of this particular issue or any issue, you know, time and time again, the idea that they should let. Mitch McConnell as Lucy pull the football away from our beloved Charlie Brown in this particular case. I, I think th- it, that's what I keep thinking about as the Green New Deal as signpost, the Green New Deal as reconceiving of what it means to be a progressive, not necessarily Green New Deal as policy or policy concept. Totally. And I, I think you're getting at something crucial here and you're getting at a, a larger phenomenon beyond just the Green New Deal, a larger phenomenon that's going on in U.S. politics, which, as you say, sort of like conventional Democrats have had this image in their head, sort of median voter theorem, this sort of like bell curve where most voters are clustered there in the center, right? So if you so if you want more votes, you go toward the center. It's sort of like a, it's a truism in that way of thinking. That's where the votes are. And, and I think you're right that the leadership is sort of seems to be the last ones to be catching on to this. But I think Democrats writ large are starting to realize that the, the other side completely abandoned the center. And so when Democrats go there to make deals, they're just in an empty room talking to themselves. There's no one left to give them credit. There's no one left to reach out to them or to give them any reward for doing that. It's just become an utterly pointless waste of time. And so where once you had this sort of like single bell curve, you're getting instead of two you're getting instead two humps that are moving away from each other. The center is is being vacated. Like it, it, which to me is fascinating, like socially fascinating, politically fascinating. You have this this political system where you have two sides that are increasingly just utterly a um unified among themselves and utterly incommensurate with the other side married with this political system full of structures that makes action impossible almost without bipartisanship. You know, this is like, this is sort of Ezra's whole deal. Uh, I think he's writing a book on it, but like one of those has to give, like one of the, one of those has to give. And, and you're right. The Green New Deal is, is the climate wing of the party saying the center has been abandoned. There's nothing there anymore. It's not a good climate solution. There are no Republicans waiting there to cooperate with us. There's no political road forward from that. There's no point at all in targeting that anymore. So instead, we're going to target sufficiency, right? We're going to target what needs to be done to solve the problem and quit pleading for this sort of uh, support from the other side that never comes, which like, again, fine, like we've circled around this in a million different ways in this conversation. That's fine in some ways. But then you're like, you've got these two incommensurate camps and uh, and structures of government that don't allow either of them to ever really take control or pass their agenda. Um, that cannot stand for long. Something has to give. And that's why, I mean, if nothing else, I mean, I want the filibuster to go. I'd like, you know, Puerto Rico and D.C. to be made states. I'd like I'd love to see court packing. I'd love to see gerrymandering solved, partly because I want good progressive policy, but partly also just as like a a, a release valve 
for this tension. Like this tension is just building and building forever. It's got nowhere to go. No one can do anything. No one can act. And you see people, especially under uh, Trump's base, more, you know, increasingly just saying, screw all this, like screw the system, screw these norms, screw these rules. Like we're just absolutely out for ourselves, scrapping every advantage we can get. You know, it's dog eat dog at this point. Um, You know, and you sort of see Dems moving that way too. But if both parties end up there, it's hard to see how that doesn't sort of like end in some version of collapse or violence. And I don't know any better than anybody else does, like what the right... How to avoid that? Look, it can end in a lot of different ways, but I think people forget just how much of the political structure we now take for granted came through contested periods of reform. And I mean, I don't think it would be an easy period, but I, I, I'm not sure it would be worse than, for instance, allowing a climate disaster to run unchecked. Two just thoughts that that raises for me. One is that it's important to say if you're trying to be committed to the value of democracy, the idea that the way American government should work is that if more people want something done than the other thing done, that's a thing that should probably happen, at least in most cases. Uh, like that has a lot of implications, right? Like the Electoral College. I, I focus a lot on the filibuster, but it's by far, it's far from the only thing. Um, you know, Voting Rights Act, like there are a million things might, you might want to think about in that space. And I do think it's important to build that out as an, build that out as an agenda that emerges from principles and values and, and not just kind of backwards from, I want to get this one built up. But the other thing that I just think is important, and I just see it in this conversation around the Green New Deal, I just see it violated all the time, is different actors in the political system have different roles. And people want to blur everybody's role into being all things all the time, that the people imagining the world as it should be or even as it needs to be also need to be simultaneously the people who are the most pragmatic, who also need to be the people crafting the policy, who also need to be, who also need to be, who also need to be. And Clever communicators, I, of course. Also. Clever communicators and all that. And I, I just think it's very important, particularly on something like climate change, for there to be a group of folks out there who are trying to demand like this is what ought to happen. Right. Like whatever you're doing, right. it has to be benchmarked against what ought to happen. And if what ought to happen right. doesn't happen, the, dis- the consequences for real people are going to be disastrous. Right. Like it is a moral failure for what ought to happen not to happen. And so I have quibbles with this. And I think there are real questions about the underlying political strategy. And are you actually making it stronger by bolting all these other things onto it? Like, I think that the best argument you can make against the Green New Deal is that it's too focused on one kind of person. It's too much an act of a certain kind of leftist projection. That like what they find mobilizing, everybody will find mobilizing. My mom will find that mobilizing. I'm not sure. I think I think there are more issues with that than than sometimes they do. But on the underlying climate side of it, it, like you really do need people setting out what the system needs to do, and then you can begin asking yourself, like, is the system capable of doing it? And if the system is not capable of doing it, then you can begin begin asking yourself, well, like, what does that say about the system? But if the truth of the matter is right that. It, I'll give just one example here. It, it is World War One and the run-up to World War One that leads to Woodrow Wilson forcing the Senate to adopt a cloture rule for the filibuster at all. Before then, you couldn't stop a filibuster no matter how many votes you had. But there was a filibuster around a preliminary policy to, to World War One, and Wilson couldn't break it. And in a special session of the Senate, he demanded and received um, from them a rule that allowed a two-thirds supermajority of senators to break the filibuster because there are certain things in American politics and life that we are not willing as a country to not be able to do. For instance, when there is support for it, fight or protect ourselves in a war. 
And I think climate like has a, a similar quality. If it is a case that our political system cannot deal with climate change, then like the problem there is not that the activists are being unreasonable. The problem is the political system. And if I want to see more of an agenda on the political system, like that doesn't that doesn't take away from the force of that indictment. Yeah, and and, and I, I want to say in in the sort of defense of the of these activists, you know, like the favorite indoor sport of uh, uh, DC political people is to crap on left activists. It's it's it the right loves to do it, the center loves to do it, even the left kind of loves to do it. And and these poor, you know, Green New Deal activists have have had to shoulder everybody's complaint from every different direction. But it's worth noting that they are in a very, very tricky position because saying, as you said, here's what needs to happen, it's very easy given the scale of what needs to happen for you to sort of just define yourself right out of the conversation, right? Just define yourself so far out that you're that that you've got nobody on the inside listening to you anymore, right? The distance between what needs to happen and what's possible can be so great that it's easy to just uh, you know, like you could end up like the Extinction Rebellion in the UK, who's now decided that their demand, and I'm not kidding, is that the UK 100% decarbonize by 2025, which which would basically mean turning off the UK, right? Like just shut her down, turn the, you know, like turn the machines off. And that's like, that's like, I mean, I don't know, like I'm not a political scientist, but that's, I can't imagine that that's like, they've got no one outside of their club who thinks that's even remotely reasonable. So at this point, like, what are they doing? And I think the the Green New Deal activists have to at once be a moral voice, a clear moral voice. And be pragmatic enough and offer enough carrots alongside the sticks that they actually give the establishment Democrats some concrete incentive to move in their direction. And they're sort of having to handle all that. And it's and it's not clear how best to do that. And it's not clear, like, you know, once again, like there's like a, a room full of like 27 year olds <laughs> and the world has charged them with with revolutionizing American politics and completely transforming the American economy and saving the friggin world. And they're just like operating by the seat of their pants like the rest of us. Like, you know, it'd be nice if like the rest of the Democratic establishment like stepped up and helped a little bit. And that's what frustrated me about the response to the Green New Deal when it first came out is everybody's knee jerk response is just, oh, those kooky lefties again, but I like the way you make the imperative of climate change feel urgent to people is that you just act as though it's urgent. <laughs> That's what Democrats don't get. They read public opinion polls and they're like, oh, the public's not there yet. Well, they are looking to you <laughs> like you. They are following elite cues. Like if you think climate is urgent, act like it, talk like it. And if and if a grassroots movement behind climate action comes and parks itself literally on your friggin doorstep, use it like that should be a blessing to you. It should be a blessing to your grandchildren who you're worried about. Right. I mean, like he, uh, grassroots energy is not you can't just conjure it up out of nothing. It's not fungible. You can't return it and say, please give me a movement that more exactly aligns with my policy preferences. Like grassroots energy is a precious thing. And here it like presented itself to the Democratic establishment, and all they could think of to do was say, oh, this is unrealistic, right? Like it's unrealistic. Politics is just perception. It's there's no it's all it's all mush. It's all cloud. It's all perception. And this thing becomes 
whether this thing is a crazy, lefty, unrealistic thing or absolutely a moral imperative that we have to rearrange politics to achieve, whether it's one of those two things just depends on which one you treat it as, how you act. And if Democrats had just said, absolutely right, this is a moral imperative. Thank you for clarifying this. We are going to make this our common, you know, benchmark, then then all of a sudden it's not unrealistic anymore. All of a sudden it's mainstream democratic policy, right? Like, but instead they just, everybody just retreated to their familiar corners, you know? And it's like, no one, that's what like, it frustrates me is no one seems to be acting as though we are genuinely in a very time limited and very extreme crisis. And maybe it's time to like, rethink some of your old, you know, affiliations and 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 uh, and beliefs. Like maybe it's time to think anew about this. Maybe it's time to do something different than just this old game of center versus left. It's just so tedious. I, I think, though, that, that, you know, we keep getting back to this this conflict between the, you know, the urgency and the pragmatism. And for some reason, this keeps, you know, I think it's challenging when you have activists that are to the left of the establishment and the idea of urgency as itself being a call for action. And I, I think that that is challenging for democratic establishment because I think that, you know, you know, I generally deal with conservative movements kind of and conservatives talking about issues they think are deeply urgent. And currently, you know, if you're still a deficit hawk, welcome. It must have been a very difficult <laughs> couple of years for you. But you are hearing from Republicans who are talking about like the deficit is an issue. This is a giant, giant problem. We need to deal with it urgently. And then you hear people responding to them like, what exactly do you mean by urgent? Because things seem fine now. It turns out debt is good. Everything is going to work out OK. And so I think mm -hmm. translating the even the idea of urgency into what do you mean by urgent and urgently do what? And how to do that in you know with a democratic big tent that is larger than it actually has ever been and i think that that's for the best but i think occasionally when you get within kind of activist circles the tent gets a lot smaller because i think being able to make the case within the democratic party is important but also explaining how one can be both pragmatic and urgent and what even urgency means in this context is important to do yeah i think i mean uh... One thing I've been waiting and I'm hoping it's finally beginning to happen is just that sort of conventional Democrats have viewed this as a quote unquote environmental issue for years and years, decades, and they just sort of left it to the environmental movement. And most of them just are not fluent in it and don't really get it on on a gut level, which 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 has a bunch of effects. One is when they're asked to speak on it, like like Elizabeth Warren, God bless her. I love uh, uh, I'm a huge Elizabeth Warren fan. I love all her plans. I love her policy literacy, but it makes it more glaring when she turns to climate change and just sounds like she is reading a bunch of uh, sound bites that she got from consultants. Right. Like I believe in the science. Like, you know, when you ask someone, what do you want to do about poor health care? What do they do? They say, I believe that illness exists. I absolutely believe that disease is real. Like, no, if you believe disease is real, you don't go talking about how it's real. You talk about what the hell to do about it. Like so. And I don't think they get also that that this is not like health care in that it can stumble along in a crappy system more or less indefinitely. And eventually you can get to fixing it. But like the fix will be just as good then as it will be now. Right. Like you're not there's nothing irredeemable. There's nothing being lost that sort of can't be uh, uh, regained policy wise. But with but with climate, literally every day that's passing, we're seeing irreversible 
changes. These are not, this is not something you can come back to next time. And I just, if, if Democrats would be more just fluent in talking about it in those terms and quit talking about it in these artificial sounding, consultant sounding, soundbite sounding, fake, inauthentic sounding uh, uh, language, I think that alone would make a huge difference. If they genuinely would read David Wallace Wells' book, <laughs> The Uninhabitable Earth, and let it freak them out uh, like it freaked me out, and then take that sense of being freaked out back to politics, talk about it as though you are really freaked out. Like, that's what people need to hear. That's how you convey it. I mean, the IPCC has given us all this information, but it's got to it's got to be made more vivid. And, and this is where I think AOC and her crew are doing a great job. Like they made a video. I don't know if you guys saw this, like a like a 10 to 12 minute video the other day, just an animated video of just AOC talking about um, not just the sort of danger, but the sort of opportunities of creating this clean, green society. And, you know, you got this like visuals of this high speed rail and these beautiful climate, you know, these uh, solar panels and just making the whole thing much more real because it just sounds like a like a capital I issue to people. And people don't care about issues, right? <laughs> they care about life. They care about their lives. They care about their circumstances. And this needs to be made real to people. So I think we're witnessing the sort of stumbling, awkward, uh, sometimes cringeworthy process whereby Democratic politicians really begin to pay attention to this in earnest in a way they haven't in a long time and slowly go through that process that everyone goes through when they really start paying attention to this closely, which is, holy shit, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> right? Like, that's what I want to hear, like, Hoyer, you know, or like, or like Pelosi or one of these sort of like crusty old Democratic leaders. I want one of them to get up in front of a crowd and say, holy crap, have you guys read this? Do you guys know what's really going on? Like, it's genuinely shocking when you find out. And I just don't see that genuine sentiment hardly anywhere in evidence, even among Democrats. I think that's a good place to bring this to a close. So Dave, thank you for joining us for a much overdue Green New Deal episode. It will not be our last. Um, Jane, as always, thank you to you out in the Weeds universe for being here with us. Uh, the Weeds will be back in a couple of days. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.